This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Today on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, we continue spending some time talking about an issue faced by nearly every agency and organization supporting foster care, recruiting and supporting families and caregivers. Hey folks, Tom Oates from Child Welfare Information Gateway here, and I know recruiting and supporting foster families and caregivers has so many angles and aspects to it. So this is one of two podcasts focusing on diligent recruitment. At issue for many agencies is a distinct difference between the number of families showing initial interest in fostering children and youth and the number of families who go through the entire application and home study process that leads to licensure. And amongst all of that, agencies and organizations are trying to be respectful to a child or youth's culture and background when recruiting families. They're also looking to engage relative caregivers to care for family members. And all of this is a challenge for the agency, a challenge for the community or county, and a huge challenge for the families involved. So what can be done to improve the overall process in engaging families and increasing the number of licensed foster homes? Well, many things. And the Children's Bureau's diligent recruitment discretionary grants are intended to explore all the different approaches and ideas that are out there. So today, we're going to chat with members from the state of New Mexico about their Regional Resource Navigator Program, which intended to improve the customer service aspect of guiding and informing families through the system and bringing on a group of navigators, those with deep experience in foster care and an understanding of the steps and stages involved from recruitment to licensure. These navigators are set up to work within specific regions of the state, so their understanding of the community is a real asset, because as we know, different areas, rural, tribal, urban, they all have different needs regarding children and youth requiring out-of-home care. Today's conversation features Isela Bursiaga, Foster Care and Adoptions Bureau Chief, and Renee Fitz, a Foster Care Program Manager from the New Mexico Children, Youth, and Families Department, along with Allison Boren, one of the navigators responsible for helping families work through the legal and emotional processes of becoming foster parents. Now, when I talked with Isela before we recorded, she referred to the time before New Mexico established the regional resource navigators as a good first date when it came to recruiting families. There was interest and excitement, but things rarely progressed well. But what they've learned is when the agency maintains open lines of communication and continuously follows up with families, the good first date can turn into a healthy relationship. So take a listen. And pay particular attention to how the Regional Resource Navigator approach emphasizes customer service, along with how Allie describes the various roles she plays as a navigator. Okay, no more waiting. Here's our chat with Isela Bursiaga, Renee Fitz, and Allison Bourne. Folks, thanks so much for diving into this topic. And we know diligent recruitment means a lot of different things for agencies who are trying to get foster parents licensed and get them through the system. Um, I've got a question for you. And Isela, we'll start off. Talk to me about why the state was experiencing such a low percentage of families who went from inquiry all the way to licensure. Well, Tom, I 
believe there were several issues that were happening at the time, but one of them being the state needed to refine the way we provide provide the customer service to those families that were inquiring about the process. We had what uh, a lack of timely responses to the families. A family might have called um, a particular day and may not have received a response um, timely, what they would consider uh, timely to them. We also had data were, and we still collect data as to who's calling, what type of family is calling, who they're calling for. We were not using data to inform the process. Um, we were also very good about utilizing general recruitment strategies such as flyers, uh, setting up at the, at the local grocery stores, the big bands, and how to attract someone. So um, I believe all of these pieces together were not really the most successful strategies to, to uh, increase the pool of families in New Mexico. So once you realized what the issue was, what did you know? What did the goals look like for what you wanted to achieve? Because you've touched base on a lot of different areas involving customer service. What did success look like to you when you started to realize, okay, we need to change and we want to implement this grant to 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 reach that change? What were your goals? Foster parents are our best recruiters. So around that time, around twenty two thousand nine the diligent recruitment grant opportunity came around and the, and the state took a very good look at it and decided to apply. So we are the uh, recipient of the 2010 uh, diligent recruitment grant. So we're in the second cluster. So we, we established, we began the goals. The work plan changed several times during the five-year period, but we began with the grassroots, the word of mouth, the retention, the sort of like the personal connection, help us navigate, let, let us help you navigate the system. We included concurrent planning. We developed a system for customer service. How do we train our staff? Ultimate, the ultimate goal is to recruit and retain and serve our families. So, Renee, now that you've got a program that Isela just uh, discussed in terms of what they wanted to do in terms of implementing, what did recruiting, um, what did that look like at that time? At the time of when the diligent recruitment plan was uh, incepted, um, again, as Isela said earlier, um, recruitment looked very generalized. It was more um, being at local fairs, different um, speaking engagements to the different communities, faith-based organizations. Um, and so from that point, in order, when we really looked at evaluating and sustaining the diligent recruitment grant, we really looked at, um, we quickly identified that retention of those families um, and support of our potential um, families was uh, key to improving the success of them achieving licensure. So what we had to look at was more developing a support system that would help guide and mentor and keep those families engaged by helping them to experience a reduced length of time um, in achieving that licensure. So that was um, one of the primary goals of uh, setting forth with our um, diligent recruitment project. So then the, the, the implementation then comes in and you guys chose to use the 
you know, the kinship, the regional resource navigator, rather. And so in putting in the regional resource navigator, what does that system look like? What does the staffing for those navigators look like? Okay, now we have five regional navigators who are employees of our agency, and we currently have seven um, contractor navigators who um, they're... Um, job descriptions and scope of work mirror each other and with that um, that is how um, they are, are really looking at tracking the data of who's inquiring um, they're tracking the timelines of how long it's taking them from, to get from point a to point b from point b to point c from you know, like a from inquiry to actually turning in an application, from application to attending training, from training to getting a home study, and then home study, and hoping that we are able to um, support them during that time so that they're able to reduce timeframes and stay engaged in the process. And being available to the family on their terms is a very important component of that. Um, for example, you know, we really want them to, um, back in the days before um, our diligent recruitment grant, uh, we're, we're very rural in New Mexico. And so they would have a training like once every quarter in a particular county. And so if you called today and the next training wasn't for three months, you're gonna lose that bug. And so we wanted to really be uh, what's available to the family. So from this, we've also looked at, you know, um, doing one-on-one -on -one trainings if necessary. We've um, added more tools to our belt, for example, like with online blended trainings for foster parent licensure. So uh, so those are some of the, the key things that are coming out of this program. And, and we'll talk with Allison in a little bit uh, to talk about what the navigators are doing. What is navigators? Uh, what does it look like in action? Uh, what did that data tell you? Give me a little sense, Renee, of the before and after now that you've had some years under your belt in this program. Well, um, in all honesty, we still have work to do, but we are making um, progress. We have, have seen a reduced timeline of licensure. Um, in some of the areas, not all areas of our state just yet, but uh, um, I attribute that a little bit to um, we haven't had full contractors in some of those areas to be able to provide that support. So it's still a work in progress, but data-wise, um, we are seeing that we are more uh, accountable for when training dates have happened. Um, our staff is more utilizing our databases to enter those dates so that we can track them because at the time there, there weren't they weren't there. Um, so we didn't know when the family attended training. So just doing a lot of cleanup on that end of things. Uh, the data is there. We are also looking at, um, are these the families that are meeting the needs of our children? Because when we're looking at more at a, from a targeted recruitment perspective, you know, um, we look at prioritizing, you know, who's gonna get the home study done first? I'm like, is it gonna be the family who's willing to take five siblings that we need homes for? or is it the family whose uh, ultimate goal is adoption, for example. So we can look at prioritization and look at that data and our data helps us evaluate on what level we need to prioritize those families. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and it's funny that you put you know, the, the data to this because it's what we need to do to evaluate and to see how are we being effective and, and where do we still need to improve. But uh, while all these diligent recruitment grants need to look at their own evaluation, the methods that they get to solving their issues are, are completely different. And I want to point some of our, our listeners to a podcast that we did just recently on folks in Florida who took a marketing approach to reaching families and finding out what 
what it is that kind of makes them tick and where they get their media. While what you guys have done have, have gone toward a personal realm in trying to find the actual folks who can make a one-on-one -on -one connection and improve that customer service aspect. And so when you're dealing with much more of the human aspect, and you've got that in the new staff you just mentioned and the contractors that you, you've added on, that then deals with a staffing issue here. And so let me ask you this about, you know, what does a navigator or what is a resource, uh, you know, a navigator that you're talking about within each of these regions? What are those characteristics that you're looking for in each of these staffs? Who are the folks you are trying to hire and, and kind of what makes them tick? Great question. So one of the biggest things that we um, are looking for with our navigators is ultimately we want them to have some sort of child welfare experience. And what we um, and I in New Mexico have really worked hard to do is identify our um, foster parents themselves. You know, as Isela mentioned earlier, foster parents are our best recruiters and, you know, they've lived it. They've walked those shoes. They've had history of being um, foster parents themselves or in in their own lives as children growing up. You know, their, their parents may have been foster parents. And so they have that lifelong experience and can tell the stories um, with a sense of reality, but also why they've endured what they've endured as far as being a foster parent, what all the hoops that they have to jump, jump through during licensure and can help support those families. And, and they get it, you know, they understand what the family's emotions are because they were there and once in those shoes. And so that is a, a very key, characteristic in, in working with the, the people we identify for these contract positions or employees. So you've got the right people. How do you give them the right training? You know, what, what does the right training look like for all these folks to actually prepare them for what they're, what they're going to be faced with? Well, Tom, what I have typically done is we have um, had one-on-one -on -one individualized training. Sometimes it's via a go-to meeting or um, webinar because they are placed in various areas of the state. So uh, that does become a little bit of a hindrance. But what we do is I've developed like a PowerPoint where we kind of go over um, the characteristics. We go over the tracking log and how important that is. Um, they have a scope of work. And so in that scope of work, we really talk to them about what type of support um, the families would need and offer suggestions like, for example, um, while you wait um, for licensure support groups, developing some type of program like that in their counties. And, but we let them have a little bit of leeway and creativity in this position. And we like to hear from them and like, hey, I'd like to try this. And then we, we bounce it back and forth and we really go through um, what they're interested in doing. I have some of the navigators who have um, developed newsletters to introduce themselves to the families as navigators. They um, put training dates on there. They mail those out to the families and then they're available to the family um, via email, via text message. Um, they do one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes some of our navigators have gone to the house. And so just really kind of going over that scope of work with them and really um, framing it as to what they can do with the families because really um, there's not really any type of restrictions of what they can do. We want them to be creative and think outside the box in regards to how they can keep that family engaged. And so if the family's providing them feedback of like, you're contacting me too much, they take that feedback and bring it back. What can we do um, differently? Um, so we just really do a lot of 
discussion with that piece. So um, the training piece is that. And of course, there's the technical training pieces of, you know, how do you invoice for this? How do you bill for this? Uh, is traveling to this type of a event okay? Or doing this type of event, we have them participate in county-based recruitment team meetings. And so um, they are um, tasked with uh, and trained on how to work on developing a targeted recruitment plan. We go over the worksheets of those plans, how to gather the data, where where in our system they can locate those um, items like data, teaching them our SACWIS system, which is known as FACS in New Mexico. And so we have to really do a lot of data entry. We have them, we show them the documentation um, necessary, how to document it on um, their contacts with the families. And then we really just follow up with them and evaluate them. And some of the things I also do to, to follow up and ensure that those navigators are um, getting it and they're actually uh, making those calls as I do a, for lack of better words, secret shopper calls. And I contact the families and say, Hey, you've had this navigator calling you. Do you know who your navigator is? And that tells me one, yes, they've had contact. And, and so getting that feedback um, from the families themselves is key to helping our navigators to continue to learn from uh, the outreach that they are doing. And it also obviously helps you guys improve those trainings and improve your ability to bring on the right folks and the information that they need as uh, as you go along the way. I want to talk to Allie right now and, and, and bring in here, Allie, and explain to me a little bit more of the day-to-day -day. as a navigator. What are kind of those roles that you find yourself commonly involved with uh, and that other navigators find yourselves as really serving that big need? Well, truly the day-to-day -day of a navigator is just being an advocate and a support system for potential foster parents. So really being that person that they can navigate through to ask those general questions to ensure that they have the proper information along with the documentation to start the process. Um, a lot of the questions that we're getting and what we found is that homes right away turn an application and they're ready to go, but they're not really given the upfront information about some of the challenges that come with fostering and adopting traumatized children. There's a lot that goes into it. And um, I often tell my homes, you know, a lot of will come in and say, I just want to love a child. And I'm so thankful to hear compassion in others, but I honestly then give them the feedback that um, sometimes fostering that way we show that love, but if that's not for them, there are other avenues they can pursue because we really want to make sure the homes that we are getting are homes that are equipped to serve our children because the children that we see do experience trauma, the reality of loss and grief and all of these um, experiences that they have. And so we have to have foster parents that understand that and are willing to work with the child, with the birth parents, with the placement workers, with all staff to ensure that there's a, a kind of a team unit for the overall success of the child. So my job really in day to day is supporting families through giving them resources and working with traumatized children. What does that look like on the day in and day out? And also answering questions. My parents were foster parents for over 20 years, adopted three kiddos. And so I get some of the questions that they have to ask. And so I'm able to kind of relate my own experiences as well as my parents and others um, in answering those questions and giving them that feedback on kind of those initial hindrances that might hiccup them from 
wanting to proceed. So that's kind of my my day in and day out is truly just being there as a support system, though, and letting them ask questions. Um, oftentimes, I want to ensure families know it's not bad to ask a question, and I advocate for them to make sure that they know their limits, they know what they can do, they know what they can't do, and they advocate for themselves um, when taking on children because for every child, we have a unique situation. And for that unique situation, we require unique foster parents that not every foster parent will fit every child and not every child will fit every foster parent. So it's important that we find this variety of pools and to let homes know it's okay if they um, feel more comfortable with a certain age group. Sometimes they feel like they have to do everything. And so that's where my support comes in as well just informing them that it's not about doing everything right, but just doing one thing really well, then you know that that's what you're good at um, and can be that support and tool. And then they just continue to grow as foster parents and their experience and knowledge as well. Yeah, this is a, you know, for a family, this is a big undertaking. You know, this is, this is, this is something huge that they're taking on. And from that initial interest of, you know, I just want to love a child. Uh, there's a lot that's involved. And sometimes the, the reality check can be a little daunting for folks. So it sounds like one of the biggest things that you're doing in your relationship with these families is, you know, shedding some light on the reality check and actually giving some sense of what this really entails, what this really means. I mean, I'm gathering a sense that, you know, besides the paperwork and the legal process and the steps, there's also this sense of what is this, what, you know, what, what am I really charged to do? What am I capable of doing? And you're, you're answering so many more kind of questions you would ask a family member or a neighbor versus a legal advocate. And am, am I, am I getting a sense of the, 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 where your job kind of fits of, you know, how much of it is actually legal and paperwork versus how much is it being a counselor and, an, and, a, and a guide for somebody? I really feel like my job is to kind of give them all that training and support up front so they don't walk in blind. They don't walk into a situation that they're unheard of. But when they get to those difficult moments, they can even still reach out back to me, their placement worker, or any of the resources I've given them for tools to help them. Because no matter how much training we give them up front, we all know that the best training and work comes from our feet on the ground. So it's the actual work when they get in there. And when they get to those tough situations with kids. Maybe they have a meltdown. Maybe they um, are starting to uh, show some traumatized behaviors. How do they then turn those opportunities from not a disruption of placement, but an opportunity to grow in their understanding of working with traumatized children and to help the children succeed and become healthy adults? I saw that firsthand all growing up. My mom and my dad never gave up on a child. They always worked through a child through placement, whether it be back to reunification or back to adoption, even through the hard things. And it was the workers there and the people there really supporting that need that helped the child become successful. So that to me is where my heart is. I know there's a paperwork and legality, but to me as a navigator, I wanna make sure my homes feel comfortable and sharing with me, reaching out to me. And also though, that my job is not to say it's all gonna be a bed of roses every single day, but to not scare them away either, but to let them know these are things you can expect and I'm gonna tell you how you can get through it. Um, and so that's where I really feel like my role comes in to play when I work with families. You know, both uh, Renee and, and Isela talked about um, working both with recruiting families, but then also connecting with uh, other families, kinship caregivers, 
What's the difference you found when you're working with, you know, an actual resource family, someone who is not related versus a relative caregiver? What are the biggest differences you find in working with those groups? To be perfectly honest, one of the biggest differences, and I tell them up front when I first meet them, is that a relative placement is one that most find themselves they didn't want to be in that situation. Then so um, they step up because they care for the child and they want to see it through. Um, and then they kind of feel like their role is just to serve their relative or kinship child and then they're done. Um, and so when I work with relative homes, I truly, I truly try to just support and help them understand boundaries is a huge thing for our relative homes because the ones they work with are family and they haven't maybe had the same kind of boundaries that now they have to have. So educating them on proper boundaries is something I do more of with relative homes. Um, also, I try to encourage, and we can, and it has happened where we get our homes that come in as a relative placement, and then they end up staying with us to foster and adopt and help out other children that are non-relatives. And those sometimes are some of our strongest homes because they have made the connection to begin with. And now then they're able to see that when working with birth parents, oh, I know what this is like because my child or, or a relative I worked with um, has been on your side. And so they, they grow in this sense of compassion. Um, my non-relative homes, I find that they need more support and just the understanding of how to work with birth parents. Um, Oftentimes, and in CYFD and for the state of New Mexico, um, the majority percent of the time, our plan is reunification. And so that's a big thing for a lot of our homes to understand is that our goal is to reunify as much as possible. Of course, there will always be circumstances where that is not, but the majority of the time it is reunification. So educating my non-relative homes on how to work with birth parents, how do I support this birth parent and through the process um, really helps in their understanding. So that's kind of where my difference lies is I have to kind of educate my relatives on boundaries. And then I have to educate my non-relatives on how to now accept and be willing to work with um, the birth families in that respect. So, you know, you, you've gone through both the, you know, the, the legal aspects and training, some understanding of all the ramifications. So there's a lot that goes into your work. If you're to talk to somebody who's new in a navigator role, what's the biggest piece of advice you would give them to help them succeed? I would challenge them to go through all of the training you're making your um, foster parents go through and educate yourself as much as you can on how to work with traumatized children. Um, not to say that we're counselors and we're going to know all the answers, but those are resources and tools that can really help make sure um, that you are leading homes in the correct way. Also, um, doing some research and finding out what are all the different ways I can re reach out to my homes, kind of brainstorming, because not every home, as I said before, is a one fit for one child. Well, not every home was a one fit for one navigator. How can I really make sure that I am accessible and I'm also one that has the information because they come to us um, needing that knowledge. And I feel like if I have to always say, I don't know, I don't know, or I get false information that I'm coming off in a way that is going to um, create maybe a bad taste in their mouth for navigators. And that's the last thing I want to do. Of course, I don't know everything and I'm humble enough to say I don't. So I can honestly say my advice would be is just to immerse yourself in training and opportunities because the more I learn, the more I can share with the homes that I'm working with. 
So there are plenty of other states out there that, just like New Mexico, have urban areas, have rural areas, have diverse populations, and they may be considering uh, an effort like a, a regional resource family navigator. Isela, for those states or those other agencies, what would be the one piece of advice you would give them to make sure that they could, you know, actually see some success with a program like this? So, Tom, I think one of the very first things any state needs to do before even diving into uh, any new program is to really figure out what it is that they're trying to accomplish and look at the data. Um, as we mentioned throughout the interview, data is something that we're growing into, we're learning about it, we're teaching our staff um, about it and how to use it. So first, know, know who you're recruiting for, uh, who do you need, and what is exactly that you need. So basically that research piece uh, is becomes very, very important. Then decide how you're going to do it. Perhaps an, a program like ours uh, may be good for some not for others. Again, it really all depends. Um, so data and results. You want to make sure that you have a, a strong evaluation process. And it is, it's along the, 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 the same venue as the CQI. You need to make sure that you try it, you evaluate it, you make revisions, and you are constantly evaluating and changing accordingly. Also, you have to think, is this going to be a state-run program? What is my funding? Uh, what are my expectations? Where, where is the money going to go to? What am I going to allow? So all of those little things really add up to a big thing. And I say this because we have been at this since 2010, so really, truly seven years. And from the inception of, of the grant, how we started, uh, we have evolved and continue to evolve uh, as we go forward. And like Renee said, we have a combination of FTEs and contracted positions because just doing it with that five FTEs statewide, that is not going to do the work that we need to do. So those would be the probably the main things that I would challenge a state to think about. How do you sustain this in the long term? The goals, they have to be aligned with the overall agency. For for example, for us, our plan, what we're doing with the navigators, is part of our strategic plan. It's not any different than what we have in our, um, in our PIP, because we're under a PIP right now for the, for the CFSR. And um, so it's one, just one item that we're working towards. Um, we have to have buy-in from our administrators. Uh, it's very important to have a commitment to be able to design the infrastructure to, like I said earlier, evaluate, make changes accordingly. And then for us is the funding. It's not any new part of money for us, but is we repurpose the money that we had and we continue to evaluate how the money is spent. We are very accountable. We hold our people very accountable to make sure that it is being utilized in the best way possible. With the longevity of this uh, project, what, um, you know, really in looking at sustaining this is really working on trying to improve, you know, uh, my goal would be like to increase, increase the amount um, 
of individuals that could um, could do these contracts so that uh, you know we can break down the regions even smaller where um, they're not spread so thin. So speaking to other states, I would really, if you're looking and considering doing a program like this is really making sure, as Isel said, that you have the agency buy-in. And then also you really wanna look at um, the manpower piece of it because um, it does take a lot. A lot of uh, communities have a lot of um, inquiries and they don't come to fruition. So you want to be able to be sure to have the staff to support that and that it has to be um, the buy-in has to be from all aspects of it, not just the recruitment piece. You have to look at the licensing piece. Do you have the manpower of individuals to do the home studies? Um, if we got this influx of individuals to come in, do you have that piece taken care of? Do you have um, staff trained to facilitate training so that those can be provided more often to, to individuals? And then really look at uh, your, your navigators themselves and knowing, having the knowledge and the messaging of making sure that they are educated to have the, the data piece, to know what the need is. So really evaluating that system's data to make sure that the, the data is accurate and it's true and really meets the needs of each of their communities. Isela, Renee, uh, Allison, I want to thank you guys so much. This is uh, enlightening to see how different states, how different areas are, are attacking uh, the, the issue of diligent recruitment in, in so many ways. Um, thank you guys so much for what you're doing, and thank you guys so much for your time today. Thank you for having us, Tom. A little bit more on the navigators now. Now, New Mexico, again, uses both state employees and contractors who are part-time independent consultants that the state hires under small purchase contracts. Navigators stick with a family all the way through the process, but they also have relationships with the state's home study contractors. Now, having that communication pipeline helps ensure families complete their requirements and the process moves as quickly as possible. Navigators are trained in data entry into the state's child welfare information system. They're trained to be mentors and have information on where to find resources and answers. And they're educated on the various state policies and procedures and also work directly with the state's placement specialists. So they're more than just a friendly face and a shoulder to lean on. Hey, be on the lookout for more podcasts that address how agencies are enhancing diligent recruitment, including the one we mentioned during the conversation about a, a different approach to connecting with, understanding, and reaching potential foster families that's happening over in Florida. There are also recent podcasts on how organizations are partnering together to support kinship caregivers and connecting them to resources and information. So if you head over to the Children's Bureau website, that's acf.hhs.gov cb, and go to this podcast webpage, we'll point you to plenty of information specifically for those prospective foster families to help them answer questions about becoming a foster parent, where to find support, and the issues families should understand about parenting children in foster care. We'll also point you to where you can learn much more about some of the other grantees within the Diligent Recruitment Cluster to see what they've done and learned in enhancing how they can recruit and retain families for children, including kinship families, foster, uh, concurrent, and adoptive families. There is so much available for you at Information Gateway over at childwelfare.gov. Again, I want to thank Isela Bursiaga, Renee Fitz, and Allison Bourne for their time. And thank you for listening to this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. 
thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.